0: Welcome everyone to season one, episode five of the On Path podcast. Every episode of the season features a conversation with a guest about their career and life to date, the path they're on. In this episode, I speak with Kirupa Chinatambi. Kirupa is a senior director of product management at Salesforce. Previously, he was at Microsoft for over a decade as a technical PM, where he worked on the developer division and Windows teams. He has a computer science degree from MIT. Apart from rocking it at his day job, Kirupa is a prolific creator. He's built one of the internet's top free resources on web development, kirupa.com, which has over 2 million posts and 200,000 members. He's also published 8 technical books, dozens of YouTube videos where his channel has well over a million views, and presented at many conferences. So why listen to this episode? I want to highlight three points. First. You get to hear how Karupa has juggled full-time work at top technology companies with his very successful side projects. Second, Karupa is just as passionate about design as development. He doesn't think about these skills in terms of the traditional buckets, and we talk about how he's brought these together in his career. Third, hear how he saves time, and especially mental energy, by keeping things simple. His offline personality is his online personality. In his words, it's not the best way to become popular, but that's not his goal. Instead, he's able to get more done and enjoy himself throughout. So with that, let's get into it. Enjoy, and thank you for listening. Hi, Karupa. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me, Vijay.
0: So we're going to be talking about product management, web development, your career and personal path. But to get things started, I want to start with something completely different. Your license plate, IDDQD. Correct. Could you please tell us the significance?
1: Yeah. A lot of video games back in the day, primarily published by ID Software, mix of Doom, Quake, and Wolfenstein 3D, and so on, IDDQD is a cheat code. It's a cheat code for basically invincibility. So, you know, you can type that code in when the game starts and you can pretty much do whatever you want and nothing will damage you. And so it seemed inappropriate for a car to have that because, you know, any drive, any, like, snowstorm or, like, even small rock, it damages it. But I like having it there because it seemed... It was also short enough. The other one would really be the one where you can, like, walk through walls and, like, you know, avoid all of that. But that's more than that a lot of characters you have on, like, a typical American license plate. So I couldn't go with that one.
0: Do, do you find you got honks, or uh, do people get the, the reference easily? A
1: lot of people do. And sadly, though, as I'm finding out more and more, <laughs> the age of the people who are recognizing that is also getting quite up there now.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. So one question I'd like to start with is, you work in product management. How would you explain product management to somebody outside the field and even outside of tech?
1: Yeah, it's um, the way I describe it often is that When you take a step back and look at what our customers use, they use products in the tech space, primarily they use products and services. And if you look at what exactly goes into it, you know, what do they see, how do they interact with it, what are the details and what happens? There's a good deal of thought that goes into how do we make this work and what are the things that are valuable for someone to actually either spend money or spend time or their attention in, you know, using your product or service. And product management is really about teasing apart the parts that are relevant and interesting from a technical point of view and aligning it with what a customer and a business might need to make it an actual success in the market. And whatever success means, it varies according to the industry and the type of company your overall end. So, you know, in the case of what I work on, which is really in the technology space, which is really software companies, it is a large part of it is everything short of actually writing code or actually designing the pixels themselves and working across like a lot of partners across marketing and business and of course engineering and design as well to make sure that we have a, a long term vision in what we ultimately end up delivering. And the product manager is the is really the person that is you know responsible at the end of the day for making sure that all these things are properly aligned and customers are happy.
0: Yeah, so it's really a very cross-functional discipline that requires a lot of skills. In your team, what are some of the key skills that you look for when hiring product managers?
1: I think I primarily look for, are they good at communicating? Are they good at coming up with ideas and translating them in terms of like balancing the business needs with the customer needs and, and team needs as well. You know, I often look at it in terms of like, you know, if you only do the work that our customers ask us for, you know, you've probably heard this analogy many times, they'll just go for a faster car. They'll never go for the airplane and go for the rocket ship. And so I often look at the product management discipline to be the one that kind of like, what's a short-term plan and how do we make sure that longer term, we actually solve the more deeper underlying need that customers have, as opposed to their immediate short-term need, which may not often be the right solution in the long in the long term.
0: Mm, yeah. Yeah, what, one thing uh, I've I've heard that, that I think resonates quite well with that is, Customers can't tell you the solution, but they can tell you about their needs and, and what their problems are. And then, yeah. then it's your, your work to figure it out.
1: Exactly. And and sometimes, especially if your customer base is technical or very much relevant, you know, in the space that you're actually developing something in, sometimes they actually do have a solution as well. And so you had to balance that out also. It's like, you know, maybe what they want is the actual widget. That you might need to deliver and not something more grandiose. You know, that goes back to the the, the the balance we always have on like, you know, what makes an MVP and is the MVP good enough, or should we actually just invest a little bit more and give them like the, the, you know more of the you know end-to-end solution, despite mean you know having more interim solutions that might be more paper cuts as not. So there's a lot of art to product management. And I had to say that I'm still figuring it all out.
0: Yeah, yeah you highlighted communication that is such a, such an invaluable skill. And in today's world with, with doing so many things remote, there's a real art to it.
1: Yeah, it is. And it is definitely one of those cases where it's one thing where you can just go into an office and like, you know, quickly talk about something, gauge the body language, gauge their facial movements and their reactions, and then continue having your conversations in a more casual way. I think now it's a case where like, because everyone is remote and everyone is like going through all sorts of different things that it's like a, it's, it's, being overly communicative is an extra level of, uh, you know, detail that we must pay more attention to than we might have had to do in the past.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So at this point, I'd like to rewind back to college. You studied computer science at MIT. I'm curious to hear what drew you to MIT. I think it was
1: just really the more laid-back, casual atmosphere. Of all the colleges there, MIT seemed very much a, a no-frills kind of a place, not very stuffy, not very formal in any way, shape, or form. It was, a, it was a culture of just people who enjoyed whatever they're passionate about. It could be technology, it could be the arts, it could be anything. There's you know, definitely a strong technology bent to it. And so that kind of really appealed to me because I just wanted a fun place to be with other really smart, creative people and just have a community of, like, I always felt that you're only as smart as the you know smartest people you hang out with a lot, and so I not just smart but you know creative and all these other dimensions that are pretty valuable as well. And so MIT seemed to provide that right balance of all those things. And I liked the campus a lot as well. It wasn't like more traditional buildings. It was essentially what was relevant for that particular time in the era that these buildings were built. So it was a, an eclectic mixture of this stuff. You know, most people are like, this. there's no pattern, there's no you know rhyme or reason to how these buildings are you know are laid out. In my case, I was like, I like that. I like that it was all very different.
0: It strikes me that you're someone who really values fun. I see that in the way you title your opening thumbnail on your YouTube videos and in so many other ways. Could you tell us a bit more about what what does fun mean to you and how you incorporate that into your life?
1: A lot of people have like an online personality and then like a, a real world personality and office personality and things like that. And it always felt like partitioning your brain, kind of like a hard drive into all those spaces. is just too time consuming. And so I felt like, you know, I'm just going to basically be myself in all these situations. Some people like it. And as you might even see some, some of the online comments or like I don't know, some of my book reviews, some people absolutely hate it. I'm like, that's okay. My goal is not to please everybody here. I just want to be myself, have fun. That also helps people on the way, either learn technology or learn something creative or do something better than what they are able to do before. Great. That's another added benefit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, lo- I love, that. It uh, saves a lot of effort.
1: Now, I wouldn't say that that's the successful way of being very popular or anything like that, but that's not a goal of mine either. So, you know, that makes it work really well.
0: Yeah. So after MIT, you joined Microsoft, you were at Microsoft for over a decade. Uh, yeah. And more recently you joined Salesforce. What keeps you at these large tech companies? I imagine if at any point you wanted, you could easily join other types of companies, but there must be something. And I'd love to hear what do you think is maybe an underrated aspect of working for, for one of these types of companies?
1: Yeah, you know, all these companies are in many ways like microcultures in their own way. You know, you can be in a large company and have a team that's very, very agile. You can be in a small company that has a large, you know, that team where they're not exactly as agile as you might want them to be. They're very conservative and slow and not really reacting to what's going on. I was very lucky at Microsoft to join, essentially it was an incubation startup kind of a project where they were trying to make design tooling for developers and bridging the workflow between the design workflow and the developer workflow and how all of these things work on the platform that's also being developed to really be a, a modern layer for animations and layout and things. So it's very different than it was done before. And so even though I was at Microsoft as a large company, the team I was in was run very much like a, a very more smaller, noobler version of what you might see in like you know, a smaller, medium-sized organization. And the management there was top-notch. They were all like ex-macromedia, ex-Adobe. You know, a lot of them had their hand in building some of the very first products that we might use, like Photoshop or Illustrator, or Dreamweaver, and even Flash. And so they brought with them a different culture as well. It was like it was in many ways like a bubble within Microsoft, where you know, Microsoft today is very different, and Microsoft 10 years ago was very different as well in how it approached developers, the community, and designers, especially. And so it was very different in that I was in a almost like a parallel universe within Microsoft, and that was very. You know, that's very good. And then I, and I changed teams at Microsoft, you know, both in like more traditional teams, like the Windows org as part of it. And there I could see the balance between like, you know, what are the pros and cons of each of these approaches and how these teams run? And also what are the enterprise needs and how does that actually change how as a product manager you approach various problems?
0: Yeah, yeah. So you were you were with that team initially? What, what was that team called? The one that was bridging the
1: It was called Expression, and the product under it was called Blend. But within that, there were like other sub-products that I had a hand in. Like there was a tool that we released called Deep Zoom Composer, which is really about like how do you create, you know, what we call Google Maps today, where you can zoom in and can see more layers of detail that keep going deeper and deeper, mip mapping in games, for example. So I worked with a team of like people to build a tool that allows you to do that for your own photos. You know, you might have seen like those examples from back when Silverlight was all the rage. There are a lot of demos of, you know, having an image, you could zoom in infinitely and you can see layers of detail that would keep coming up even on like lower bandwidth connections. And I worked on a designer for making some of those things possible. That, that to me is like one of the highlights if I ever look back. It like, was one of the coolest things that I ever worked on that. I still look to that one. as like, you know, that was one of the things where no one ever done anything like that before. And we were able to make it easy to use for any photographer, really. not a developer, not a designer, but someone who was just wanted to create something cool and share with their friends.
0: Yeah, yeah, I remember that particular example. It was just very striking how you could super zoom into a extremely high-resolution image in a very smooth way.
1: Yep, yep, yep.
0: So you have a real connection to design, and I believe you're also quite into pixel art. Could you tell us a little bit about your love for pixel art?
1: I was always a designer. I always enjoyed designing, drawing, doodling, sketching. That was really what I, what my hobby was. You know, Growing up, even when I had free time, I would always just be like with a pencil and paper, just drawing and doing things. And so when my parents got a computer in the early 90s, there really weren't too many like real tools to do stuff. At least on Windows by default. You know, I didn't know much about Aldus and Adobe and all these things at the time was wasn't fully aware of all those things. So Microsoft Paint was the primary tool that I used to do things and Paint was the easiest tool to basically draw rectangles and squares and try to make something happen. And I was also a big video gamer, at least I enjoyed the idea of like you know having time to play video games. So and back when the NES and SNES were all overall you know, pretty popular. The primary way the visuals often presented themselves was through like blocks and pixels in many ways. So trying to replicate the Mario characters, for example, on your computer and so on, really revolved around pixel art. And once that became a big movement in general where like pixel art can be used not just for image sprites or games themselves but for actual web pages also like having web pages and navigation elements and fonts that are pixel based that was like a tie-in between like what I cared about was a hobby but also something that you can also put into your browser and actually give to other people as a way of experiencing something bigger in my case was teaching them how to do cool things with code and doing cool things with design on a computer. And so it's just kind of like blending all of my hobbies into one thing, and Pixlr just naturally came out of that.
0: That that seems like such a superpower, being able to combine rich development knowledge, product management, and affinity and skill with design. I was listening earlier today to the, the head of marketing at Notion talk about how in their marketing team they hire designer developers people who do both cuz it just allows them to move much faster do you think that's something that's going to grow that where the those skill sets come come together in the same person
1: you know, it's going to be a gradient in terms of like, you know, when we talk about what we talk about designers and developers today is very different than what it was, let's say, 10 years ago. And today, nowadays, just because of just the familiarity of many tools that people use on a day-to-day basis, would you consider someone who uses Instagram, adds a filter, and then it's like tweaking the various sliders of color values, would we consider them a designer or would we not? You know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, we would probably said yes, they probably would be under the design lens. And so what we kind of bucket today as designer designer developer, I think it's going to be constantly evolving you know, another example is also when we talk about programmers and developers. Before it was very clearly defined who was a programmer and who wasn't. But today you have a lot of people in this gray area, which is really big, like the like data scientists, for example. These are individuals with like, a in mathematics background. Mathematics is different. You know, there's always a slight programming element to it. But you have economists, you have behavioral sociologists, you have all these disciplines that normally would not have fallen under this programming bucket. But there they are, like using Python and R and doing all these data modeling. You know, would we consider them like classic developers in that sense as well. And so from that point of view, the way I look at it is that as long as people have an appreciation or understanding of what goes into, something it's well-designed or what goes into building something and the limits of the technology they're currently working with. I think that to me is like the biggest feather in the cap. Everything else is like learnable. You know, I think the biggest thing really is that are people, you know, we use the term growth mindset a lot. Do people have the willingness to keep learning and keep questioning the things that they know? And are they willing to relearn things and forget things that they no longer need? And so I think that's going to be a bigger thing in the future where it might have been like, you know, you could have learned one thing and been successful for 10 years straight without relearning it. I think the speed at which everything is changing the speed at which we're kind of blending in like what used to be design, what used to be technology and bringing new things that now fall a design or developer like workflow. I think it's going to be, a, a, the bigger challenge going to be, are people willing to adapt and learn very, very quickly?
0: Yeah. Yeah, and clearly throughout your career, you've learned and adapted quickly. But one of the things that really impresses me about what you've done is, it's not just that you've learned for yourself, but you've created... One of the web's top free resources on web development. Could you tell us a bit about how that all started over 20 years ago? And and I'm really curious to hear about that first feeling when it started to take off. Yeah,
1: I never had any goal of doing all of this. Most of my career and most of everything I've done is, you know, I just did what I thought was cool and I enjoyed and I thought was like fun. I just ended up becoming something larger, you know, accidentally. And of course, through like the influence of so many other people around me as well. So a long time ago, Intel of all companies, used to create Java applets. And they created Java applets showing off how cool their microprocessors were, doing 3D and things like that. There's like an image carousel they built, there's a 3D photo cube and all these things. Now, back then, it was kind of cool. Like, you know, you open up your browser, you see like a little cube, like spinning with all these photos that you kind of defined. And so I wanted to learn how to use all that. And I, of course, you know, I had no idea what it is. I was just copying and pasting things. I didn't even know that, you know, like I had a GeoCities account where you had like, a, I think a whopping 500K of file size that you could use. and I didn't even know that you needed to upload, like if you're referencing a Java file, for example, you need to rep- upload those files to the server itself. So it was like, is a lot of just like, you know, it was just gunk work, just trial and error kind of learning. And so once I learned how to do all these things and I shared it with a couple of friends and I was like, hey, check out what I created. Here's like a photo cube of me, you know, some photos that I took, here they are. And they were like, oh cool, can you tell us how you did this? And there weren't really too many information out there that was geared toward, you know, other kids in middle or high school or individuals who weren't very deeply technical or knowledgeable. So I started just writing these things down. Down quickly and emailing it out and saying, like, oh, here's how you did it, here are the steps you can do. And that kind of became popular in that people kept forwarding those, people kept sharing those, and I kept getting questions back on like, how do you do this? And it got to the point where I just didn't have time to reply to all the emails while also balancing all these things. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to publish all this online. And so back then, browsers came with free code editors, you know, Netscape came with Netscape Composer, and Internet Explorer came with Front Page Express. And so I was like, okay, you know, I always like front page, you know, from like, you know, Microsoft and IE was like the browser it was like, you know, really on the upswing at the time. It was the cool browser to target. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to use front page express. And so I brought launched front page express, you know, use their WYSIWYG editor to like, you know, visually draw stuff and manually upload files. And that's really how the site got started was really just like using the free tools that the browser really provided for being able to create content. And the content was really around just stuff that I was fiddling with on like all these various websites. And that over time just started growing i created a you know a message board around like late 1999 early 2000s to like be like okay you know i can't answer the like emails anyway so let me create a community where people can go and i kind of kind of help themselves do this you know there's a company called easy board which made it very easy to just create an account I and mean, these are probably names that most of your audience will have like no idea what i'm talking about i'm just making up acronyms here but that was a real thing you know, Easyboard board was one of the most popular forum software for anyone to customize and be able to personalize for their own particular needs and was extremely easy to set up as well. Because that was also the thing I cared about also is that I don't have infinite time, nor do I have like infinite knowledge or even basic knowledge. Of like server administration and things like that. So if that was a way, I was like, you know, sign up for a website. They give me a URL as terrible as it might be, but it gives me the basic functionality I wanted. I always went with those things. And so the first version of the forums that you know are a big part of the community even today were I uh, was on Easy Board, and then that evolved over a period of time. A lot of members joined, and you know, it became its own like you know social network for like designers and developers to collaborate for a very very long time.
0: You don't have infinite time, as you mentioned, but I'm still amazed at how you managed to runkarupa.com, make YouTube videos, publish books. You published eight, eight technical books, speak at conferences and really flourish in your career at Microsoft and now at Salesforce. How do you do that? How do you juggle everything?
1: I actually don't. You know, if you look at the, my, my frequency of publishing, for example, on the website, it has dropped significantly in the last like few years. You know, I have a two and a half year old daughter as well. And so that takes up a lot of my time. And so I prioritize my day job with work and what I'm doing with like the, my product teams. And then I spend the rest of my time just ad hoc. Like whenever I have free time to add content here and there, I do it. But it's nothing formal, nothing like a case where, you know, if you look at my publishing schedule back when I was in college, for example, I wrote a lot of things. But now I tend to just prioritize fewer, more deeper, more longer form content, as opposed to more the shorter, you know, it's like, hey, check out this cool thing. And. I put it out there. But the nice thing about Google is that it indexes everything. And so content even popular today is stuff from like, you know, five, 10 years ago that I wrote. And that's really what's driving a lot of the you know interest that I still have on like all these things that people notice.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I saw uh, this year you put up some really great videos uh, on YouTube as well.
1: Yeah, but they're very sporadic though. You know, YouTube videos is one of the things where like, you both need the time and the energy. And of course, in my case, some of them require like, you know, extra prep work to make sure the coding examples are just right or the visuals are just right and so on. And and a, a big part is also like a large part of my day involves making presentations and talking and doing like a lot of writing and so on. So the mm-hmm. amount of energy and mental capacity I have to continue that after work, I think that's been a big area where like, you know, I just don't have time anymore or the energy level for it. I feel like, you know, if all my time is spent presenting or writing or, you know, doing conversations, the rest of my time I spend doing other interesting things. Like I, like I enjoy cooking, for example, and I'm, I still do enjoy like doodling and painting and things like that, which aren't easily shareable and nor do I have any interest in like getting it to the point where I want to actually share them also. And just having fun, like my wife, my daughter, and we also have a cat who usually is here and causing a ruckus, but for whatever reason, he's currently not here. And so I really spend all that time with them instead as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. Just about your cat. That was cool how you included that in one of your YouTube videos.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it, I just can't avoid it. You know, he's going to be here whether, you know, I like it or not. And he's often a regular, you know, attendee of all the meetings that I have as well. And, yeah. you know, he's very, he yeah, he just enjoys being front and center. So. yeah,
0: yeah. One question that someone suggested that I think uh, would be interesting to hear your answer on is, as you mentioned, you have you have more commitments right now and you aren't necessarily able to spend as much time. Even for the, the time that you put in, you you must still have to say no to some things. And especially in the past, maybe you've had to say no to many other things in order to, to build and write everything you have. Could you tell us a little bit about how you decide what to say no to and what to get into?
1: i say no to of everything that comes to my plate. There are things that I want to get done as part of the priorities that I have in in terms of what I want to do. And then there, of course, are things that other people want you to do as well. And so when time is very short, I tend to prioritize the things that I think are more important. So things that I have on my plate. So unless it's something that's like. Absolutely critical. You know, I very rarely am now in a, in a situation where I, I want to say yes to things. And that's also okay as well. You know, like I, I get pinged by publishers to like write a book for topics A, B, and C. And those are things where I'm like, I can recommend other authors who might be good at this, who have been looking for writing opportunities, but I'm gonna take my own pace. Like even the books I've written right now, they're oftentimes the same content is on the website for free. I provide the book as a convenience for those who want a paperback edition, but it's never a case where like I'm going to spend 6 months writing something that no one's ever going to see. I've, I've gotten to the point now where my focus really is on, you know, really small tasks that can be shared and provide immediate value to people as opposed to keeping things at a back burner because when I do that, they never leave the back burner sometimes as well because as priorities come and go. So I'm like, okay, what are the short-term, you know, quick things that I can get out there and then leave some of the bigger things to other people to to figure out.
0: Yeah. And since we're speaking about time, we're in November 2020 now. And of course, dynamics have shifted, probably not commuting to work and things. How has that uh, changed things for you? Is it a positive gain in time? or
1: I think it's a positive gain in time, but I also a case where like all of my colleagues, all the you know, you know people I work with on a regular basis, they also have more time as well. And so I think I find that my schedule is now more compressed than ever because the time that Others may have taken to like hang out, like have a casual lunch with colleagues and friends or do the commute where they're thinking more of these things are now filled in my case with a lot of meetings and a lot of requests on my time. And so that has definitely been something that has been more interesting to balance because I get more immediate progress on a lot of things that I'm working on because I can ping someone and they're online during the day and they have like the bandwidth to help in some of these cases as well. But it does also make it challenging in my case to like, you know, just have time to decompress. You know, when I used to go to the office, for example, I used to take walking meetings, I used to take a small break and go to the gym in the building, for example, just clear my mind, I call it like defragmenting your brain for a bit so that all the information you had that was going on, you're able to yeah. process it and take a you know take a few moments to put it in a reasonable bucket and then figure out like how to work on that. So now that time is usually spent in the evenings, essentially trying to use that time to figure out like, okay, what exactly happened? What are the important things that need to be done? And what are the things that can be pushed off till later?
0: Have, have you tried to kind of substitute some of those like walks?
1: So I have actually started doing walking meetings. I, I you know Google Meet is the primary tool that Salesforce often uses for their kind of for all their meetings. So I had on my phone as well. And so oftentimes now I just take my meetings of walking around the house. And so I do try to mix a little bit of that as a part of it.
0: Cool, cool. So, looking back at your life, who would you say are one or two very influential people?
1: Uh, my parents, definitely. I think my parents played like, yeah, a big role in all of this. They are not computer people. They're not, you know, my mom's a nuclear physicist. My dad's a metallurgist or material scientist. But they always kind of knew that, you know, I had this interest in like technology and programming and just computers and art in general. And they encouraged it heavily. You know, they always were like very supportive of my ideas of not doing what was often like what most of my peers did during that time, you know, they either became doctors or they became like engineers in some of the hard sciences, you know, I went to I did computer science, but my interest was basically in other areas like art and design, the intersection of all these things. And my parents are very supportive throughout the whole process of all these things. And, you know, being a parent myself right now, if I'm thinking about like, you know, what if my, my daughter wants to, you know, be working in these areas that I'm like, really? Is that really a you know, viable career path and things like that? I'm like, you no, know, of course, we'll be supportive and all these things. But looking back at it now, I'm like, wow, it must have been definitely something for my parents to think about. Like, you know, He spends all this time drawing and painting and writing and you know, playing basketball half the time. And so like, you know, what is he ever going to make of himself 10, 15 years from now? And so I often look back and I'm like, wow, that must have been quite something. But they never you know, let me know that it gave me any pressure to do anything but like what I really wanted to work on. So I think it's one of the things where I like, appreciate more and more of it as I'm getting older.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it sounds like you've really brought that together in the in the work you do and uh, the side projects as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, always, I'm one of those people like you know never downplays the role of luck in all these things. Being at the right place at the right time, I think is a is a big part of this. You know, I mean, persistence and having passion for it definitely helps. But you know, I also like look back at like you know when I got my job at Microsoft, for example, the interviewer was someone that I had only known through like from, through reputation. You know, he was actually someone who was created one of the files, early file systems on on Windows machines, you know, Mark Spikowski, you know, MZ, if you ever look at the alias on like the, you know, the, the header files on like a lot of these executables on Windows, that was that mm-hmm. person. So I kind of knew about him beforehand and, you know, and so I got, you know, great, had a great conversation. And I feel like that kind of, you know, helped me get the next round of interviews and, and so on, because, you know, it's helping a challenge, but, you know, product management, especially, especially in college, is not a very common discipline that they interview for because, Product managers is, that you know, you oftentimes it's kind of like an MBA, you know, they expect you to have work experience in a more traditional, like non-product management field, whether it's like, you know, engineering or user experience or marketing or business before they go for the role of product manager. And so I often look back and I'm like, you know, I was quite lucky to have been given the opportunity without having any knowledge or education in product management to have interviewed and have gotten the chances to go there. And so there are all little things that I'm like, okay, the little there are often like cases where, you know, if I had either missed a meeting or if I'd done something slightly differently, the, in my entire path, like what I would have done from there on out, would have been very different and maybe better. Maybe, you know, it's hard to know. Maybe honestly, the, the multiverse is in the like, parallel universes where like, you know, the version of me that is like, you know, doing something very different and we can evaluate like, you know, and, and uh, am I happier or not happier? But I'm pretty happy how things turned out and, I can't say that I engineered any part of a large part of it. You know, things just fell into place in many ways because of my position and like where I was in college. You know, the work my parents did, or the colleagues and the friends, my initial managers that I've had. So it's all played a big role in all these things. So yeah, I'm never one to downplay luck. That's a big part of all of it.
0: So if if we go back fifteen years to two thousand five, so you're you're at MIT, could you have seen yourself in product management in Seattle? Would it, would that have really surprised you
1: or Product management always appealed to me because it gave me the opportunity to like, even back then, it was an opportunity to like work on a lot of different things, without being pigeonholed into like, you know, either just writing code all day or designing all day or working on any particular problem space, you know, for a long period of time, it gave you the freedom to work more closely with customers. So that way you were often in cases like, you know, dealing with the people who would be benefiting the most from whatever you're doing. And that to me was like something that always appealed to me. So that I'm working in product management right now is a big surprise, but that I'm in Seattle, for me, the where I'm actually working or where I'm living at that time, never really played a big role in everything. As long as I have an internet connection, I felt that I'm going to be pretty happy. So I can be like anywhere. As long as I had the ability to like get on the internet and and do stuff, I was going to be great. And I apologize for my cat, by the way. Normally, he doesn't (laughs) usually find other things to do.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, we don't have the video here, but it would be great for everybody to see your cat too, climbing all over you. <laughs> so here's, here's a question I recently cooked up. What's something that you used to compromise on before that you don't anymore, so now you insist on it? And what's something that you used to insist on before that now you compromise on? And I, I use the word compromise very deliberately as in it's something that you realize it, it doesn't really matter.
1: Yeah. I used to, you know, because I juggle all these side projects and on all these things that I really enjoy doing, I used to hold myself pretty much you know, very close to a schedule. I had like a plan. I was like, you know, under no circumstances I'm gonna like, you know, I wanna be focused, I want to be disciplined and I wanna make sure that I work on all these things, even if it means I'm gonna be staying up extra late and doing some of these items. And that's one of those things that as I got older, as I see like does it really matter in the day? Like, you know, who, what, are, what's really important in life and what is not like, is me writing this article right now or putting this video really that much more important. It's like, you know, just spending some time with friends and like, or catching up on like how their life is going, for example. And so I think I have started prioritizing people much more highly now, especially the more like in-person, like, you know, or phone kind of conversations than I kind of have done in the past where I was like, you know, I'll just send them in a quick IM and like, you know, just leave it at that. And so I think that's one of the things where like, I feel like it is a, it's not a compromise per se, but it's a change that I'm happy having made. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so so building on that, that change and learning over time, if you were to go forward all the way to your 80th birthday and the, your friends and, and, and colleagues were there, what, what kind of things would you like for them to say if they were toasting you?
1: If they were toasting me?
0: That's a good question. I I don't
1: exactly know what it would be for the most part, but I hope they, you know, mentioned something about I'm a fun, friendly person. I was a good husband, good father. And hopefully, you know, the cat comes into the picture somehow that, you know, the cat probably lived for a very long time since then. And that, you know, so like, look, I want to be casual, casual and not be focused on the work or like focused on, you know, these kind of things that at the end of the day doesn't really matter when you look back at your life like 80 years from now. Like, I don't think anyone's going to be like, wow, he built this cool tool at Microsoft. or He's doing this cool thing at Salesforce or wherever I might end up, you know, taking my whole career. And so, you know, those are kind of things where... You know, I don't want that to be the focus. I want it to be more on just like the things that I did to make other people's lives better.
0: Yeah, yeah. So really like people remembering you for, for who you are, you, this fun, loving person. And
1: Yes, yes. If, if people remember me for like, you know, my work or the website or anything like that, that I've been, you know, that I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to still keep blogging at that time as well. But I yeah. hope that's like a secondary or tertiary bullet point, as opposed to like the primary thing that, you know, people remember about me. Yeah.
0: Okay, final question for someone who's an aspiring front end developer, wants to get into the space, what would your what would your top recommendation be?
1: I'd say, you know, there's a balance between learning things and a balance between just building things and just trying things out on your own. It's going to vary for every individual. But I'd say find that balance and figure out, like, where do you want to be, like, you know, two years from now, three years from now, five years from now and see, like, what are some of the things that will help you get there? and reach out to people who are more than happy to help you out. You know, one of the things I found about tech community in general is that they're very generous with their time. And so if you ever need guidance, feel free to reach out. Feel free to reach out to me as well. I'm more than happy to spend time, like, helping, like, you know, clarify some things. or so just explain, like, some of my parts to the story so that it may not apply in an apples-to-apples kind of way, but can give you an idea of, like, some general, you know, long-term directions so you can think about and so yeah ask for help ask for help early ask for help often and people will be more than happy to give you their input and of course figure out what applies to your situation as well though
0: i like that ask for help hirpa you're amazing you're an inspiration thank you for all the great resources you create and make available to the world for free and thank you so much for joining today
1: thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about all these things
0: Before ending, I want to share a bit of the backstory. I first came into contact with Krupa's work 15 years ago when I was trying to create a dynamic image gallery using Flash. A couple years later, in 2007, I got to meet him in person at an on-site training in Microsoft HQ for Silverlight. A lot has changed since then. Both Flash and Silverlight are out of the picture now. What hasn't changed though is Kurupa's passion for web development and design. As always, thank you for listening and stay tuned for the final episodes of season one.